first, it's always an incredible honor for Gil to ask me to talk. And the older I get, the more overwhelmed I am. All right, because not only is Gil Gil, but I look at the people who come here and, you know, I think they must have me for comic relief. (laughs) Anyway, it's amazing to be here and it's astonishing to see all these people. And what I'd like to do, my topic today is happiness. Um, and I'd like to talk for about 20 minutes and then leave it open. Because as some of you already know, there's this Scylla and Charybdis about, oh my God, what goes on in, in Cambodia is so incomprehensible that there's no way to bridge it. Or suffering is suffering and it's all the same. All right? And When I come and I talk, and I do this every year because that's how we keep going, um, it's very important to steer between those things because it is true that the conditions under which I work are pretty unimaginable for people here. And it's also true that suffering is suffering. But it's not true that there's no bridge. Yeah. It's, it's not true that you can't get there from here. <laughs> okay. So, I astonished myself when I wrote Inez that I was going to talk about happiness this year. Because I thought, dear God in heaven, what do I know about happiness? <laughs> and Gil, in his gentle and wonderful way, said, um, uh, you know, how did he put it? He put it infinitely more tactfully than this, but it was, you know, don't go there with your huge mopey face and try and do it. (laughs) Because a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about is hard to take, okay? But it's exactly because it's hard to take that it is completely relevant, I think, to the question of what was the Buddha doing? He says, I teach two things. I teach suffering and I teach the way out of suffering. Okay, and if there's no suffering, then we have no need for it, right? It's only because all of us have direct, personal, passionate involvement with the reality of suffering in our own lives and in the lives of people that we love that we are willing to come here and sit with our legs crossed and watch our minds, Nobody does that without that fundamental experience. So we all know 
about the reality of suffering. Um, again, let's keep the difference between absolute and relative here. I'm speaking about the relative level. You know, at the level where the universe is made of enlightened compassion, it's another question. But most of us don't live there most of the time, okay? Most of us live in the middle of the rest of it. And we can do that when we're rich, and we can do that when we're poor, and we can do that when we have beautiful homes in Los Altos, and we can live that when we have rat-ridden slums in Bore Kela. And it is the same. From the perspective of what the Buddha is teaching, at this point in my life, I am absolutely convinced that it is the same. And that's where the bridge is. That's why the story I'm going to tell you about the person who's breaking my heart right this minute um, is not about some creature from another planet. But before we get there, two things, most of which I think most of you know. One, the Dalai Lama says, if you try to get happiness for yourself, it never works. The only way to get any happiness is to be working compassionately for other people. As long as you're focused on your own happiness, it is eternally self-defeating. Either you get what you wanted, it ain't what you wanted, or you don't get what you want, or you get something else, you know, but it never works. Okay, so that's the first thing I want out here in front of us. Just a reminder from that wonderful Dalai Lama book on happiness that you can't get there by feeding the ego. You can't get there by deciding that you want other things. Yeah? Or you want this. Because it doesn't come from out there. It never comes from out there. Which is going to be my point in about two minutes. But before we get there, let's get to the other thing. Which we all know from meta practice. All beings desire happiness. It is the fundamental nature of all beings to desire to be happy. And this is true at the relative level and it's true at the absolute level. And what messes us up at the relative level, as we all know, is greed, anger, and ignorance. You know? It's about the wanting, the hating, and the getting it wrong. Okay, and I don't know about you guys, but I do that a lot. (laughs) So, I've given you two things that don't go together. (laughs) In a funny way, I'm actually being true to my tradition this this morning because my my root tradition is Zen. You know, I work in some Tibetan practices especially because of the work that I do. And the Tibetans are specialists on dying. And I work with Vipassana largely because of Gil. Uh, 
and Theravada because I live in Theravada countries. But my root tradition is Zen. And in Zen, we have these things called koans, right? You know what koans are? You can't fix them. (laughs) I mean, they simply, your mind won't do it, right? So that in order to find the resolution of a koan, you have to transform your life, the foundations of your life. And the koan pushes you to do that. And the more passionately involved you are with that koan for whatever reason, either because your teacher is hitting you with a stick every 20 minutes and saying, moo, 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 moo. Do you know that one? Does a dog have a Buddha nature? Okay, very famous beginning koan for Zen students. Joshu was a very famous monk. And a monk, and, you know, everything has a Buddha nature. We know that. Everything has a Buddha nature. Right? So a monk comes and asks Joshu, does a dog have a Buddha nature? What's the matter with you? And Joshu says, Now, mu means no, but it doesn't exactly mean no. It means emptiness. So a lot of times when you start sitting Zen, you spend the first 10 years mooing your life out. (laughs) Okay? Because until you totally become that moo, until that paradox of does a dog have a Buddha nature or doesn't a dog have a Buddha nature, until that takes over your life so that you finally see what a Buddha nature is, it ain't going to work. Okay. The Buddha never promised us we weren't going to die. He never promised us we weren't going to get sick. He never promised us that if we lived long enough, we weren't going to get old. And he never, ever, ever promised us that rotten things weren't going to happen. Okay? So while many of us you know, we start sitting in the expectation, phew, man, now I'm going to get this done and I'm going to get this job. And, you know, it's not what the promise is. Yeah? And we learn that to our unhappiness all too quickly. <laughs> what he promised us is that it is possible to have a peaceful and joyous heart in the middle of whatever is going on, however awful that might be. That means, you know, if you're lying there, you know, in your own filth with nobody to clean you, dying of AIDS, with people being horribly nasty to you. The Buddha promised us 
even there, especially there, Now, what the pardon my language, but what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. <laughs> I see people like that all the time, and they're not happy. <laughs> come on. What does that promise mean? Yeah, because as Katagiri Roshi once said in his wonderful, wonderful, wonderful first book, you know, by the time we come to die, it's a little late to learn this stuff. We're not in very good shape when we're dying. You know, we haven't got a lot of energy. You know, our minds aren't working so well. You know, if we want to learn this stuff, then the time to learn it is not on our deathbeds. Because <laughs> we're in pretty bad shape. Okay? I mean, most people in this room are at least my age, which means that most people in this room have been at least at one deathbed. And, you know, people are not in condition for complicated teachings. Let me tell you. (laughs) I once tried to explain the refuges to somebody I loved very well while he was dying. Boy, that taught me. (laughs) So now I just talk about safety. You know, I don't try to talk about the difference between the historical Buddha and the thousands and thousands of Buddhas in the world and the difference between yellow robes and the Sangha. And No, no, I just talk about safety. Yeah. And then, then it gets easier for people because safety makes sense to you when you're dying. Yeah. Safety is something that, you know, that's got some meaning. Yeah. But the intellectual energy for the rest of it. Anyway. So the koan that I want to give you, and I want to talk about a little bit of my own experience this year with, is what does that promise of happiness right in the middle of suffering mean? Now, I want us to take a minute and I wanted us to think about ourselves or people we love or people we know who are in the middle of suffering. If for some reason you don't know anybody like that, you can just send your good wishes with me to my friend who is on her deathbed right now and I'm very far away. And... Let's just take a minute to wish them well to send them meta practice. Okay? Can we do that? Do you want to ring our bell or you want? <coughs> okay. All right. Okay. Won't sound so pretty when I ring it.
It's good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now let me tell you a little bit about Mayakak. That means Akak's mother, although the kid's name is actually Kakandal. Right? She had four children, and her seven-year-old died already. Her 14-year-old is fine. Her baby we don't know about. Her five-year-old is on antiretrovirals. Um... Five months ago, she had cryptococcal meningitis, and it wasn't diagnosed for two weeks, and she hasn't ever really recovered. So while she was supposed to go on antiretrovirals, she will probably not live that long. Um, I was raised in the 50s. You know, mother was the nastiest word in the English language. (laughs) It still isn't so pretty, okay? Um, In my life, I've seen some very good mothers. I've known some very good mothers. But in my life, I have never seen anybody with a mother's heart like this woman that when she sees her children, she lights up with such joy. Okay, When she first moved into Boreke Lao, one of the slums I work in, all right, she, she was five months pregnant. She was running away from her brutal husband. Her first husband had died. And she cried all the time. <laughs> A friend of ours spent hours and hours and hours and hours with her, but you never saw her when she wasn't crying and crying and crying and crying. And here was this round woman, five months pregnant, and crying and crying and crying and crying. And anyway, one day, I do Reiki in bunches in that group. Um, so I was doing Reiki with somebody, and she was waiting her turn. And Kakanda, the little one who was not yet on antiretrovirals at that point. People know what antiretrovirals are. Those are the drugs that give you a chance to live, all right? And there's a wonderful program in Cambodia now to provide them for children. Anyway, he wasn't on the ARVs yet, and he came to get something from his mother, and, and he 
put his arms on her and she looked at him and put it. And it was the smile of a Raphael Madonna. You know, that absolutely gentle, completely powerful, completely without any sense of self, purity of love. And I thought, my God. Now, that was 16 months ago. All right, that baby's now 11 months old. All right. And I have never seen her look at her children without that. Sometimes the smile's more active, sometimes it's less active. But the pure, unmitigated, unpolluted, unconfused, uncomplicated, pure love that flows from her is, I mean, it's worth 20 years in Cambodia just to be exposed to it, okay? Because I really would not have believed in its existence without seeing it in this consistent and consistent way. And now she's dying. And I have been very bad in the past few weeks because I've been neglecting other duties to make sure that her kids are going to be together when she dies and not separated. And this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And and so in the last week or so, I've been careful that other people don't feel neglected because other people also have souls. All right. And the borders between favoritism and the necessary difference in the way you treat people because their circumstances are different are not always easy. We try to be fair. We try to treat people with equivalent compassion. But this case has really pushed my limits on that. All right. Anyway, so there it was, Wednesday. <laughs> when did I get on the plane? I got on the plane Saturday morning. Thursday. <laughs> there's, there's something to be said for getting off a plane, getting fed a wonderful meal by my friend Judy, having half a night's sleep and coming right here because it's all still fresh. And she wanted to go back to the hospital. And I ran to the hospital and I found out from the doctors that they would, yes, yes, bring her right away, yes, bring her right away, and the social worker, yes, bring her right away. And I went back and so we got a Ciclo, which is a a bicycle-driven taxi, all right, and piled a bunch of stuff in that. And then the person who a friend of ours is paying to help her piled a bunch of other stuff. And... I sat in the Ciclo with a blanket on my lap and and with Mayakak on my lap, and we were on our way to the hospital. And at that point, we didn't know it would take two days to get her into the hospital and that it would be really very, very, very hard. Okay, we were just on our way to the hospital because that's where she wanted to go. It wasn't that I thought she was going to live any longer for going there. 
But that's where she wanted to go, you know? All right. And I had my arms around her, and she had her hands on top of my hands. And I thought, there's nowhere on earth I would rather be at this moment than in this cyclo with this woman. That doesn't mean I want her dying of AIDS. <laughs> okay, let's not, let's just let's just clear some parameters here. You know, <laughs> there are times I feel where I would much, much, be much much happier if somebody would take me instead because she's of more value in the world because of the quality of the love. All right, but that there was no place else I'd rather be than in that cyclo with the woman on the way to the hospital. And that this is exactly what the Buddha is talking about. This is a little bit of a taste of what the Buddha is talking about when he says, in the middle of the most terrible suffering, we can have a mind of peacefulness and compassion and joy. And I felt immensely, bottomlessly grateful to her for allowing me to have that tiny taste of it that I would not have had without her. You know, I might have worked another ten years. Yeah. So at this point, I can say with the tiniest taste that it's not a fraud, all right? When Buddha talks about joyousness and compassion and peacefulness right in the middle of it, not someplace else, not by blissing out, but being right there, a hundred percent present in the midst of the suffering. That he is really telling us something that we need to learn. Right. And there's one other piece of it, and then I promise I will shut up. <laughs> There's always one more piece, and then I'll shut up. Um, now, what was it? <laughs> will come to me. Um, that peace does not make us inactive towards social change. It puts work for social change on a very different foundation and gives us the strength to persist in it even when we are burned out beyond burnout 
and exhausted beyond exhaustion and fed up to so much more than here with the stupidities around us that it frees us to find ways to continue. So that promise of, found, of, of happiness is foundational. And it's not about changing our conditions so that they make us happy. It's about changing our relationship to our conditions. And the most important piece of this is that the only good we ever do for patients, we don't have a lot of, there there are organizations that do food and money and medicine, we don't have that. All we have is love. And a little bit of monkey bomb, which is like eucalyptus oil that we put on things, and a little bit of Reiki and stuff like that. But but we're not gonna we're not gonna feed them and medicine them and clothe them and house them. Okay, that's not where we fit into the larger picture. All right. But the degree to which we have that happiness the degree to which we bring it is exactly the degree to which we are of a benefit to the suffering that we encounter. So that our ability to bring a compassionate and joyous heart to the middle of these terrible conditions is our work. And we are very grateful to our patients as our trainers because <clears throat> one of the things about working with we, where we do is we see failure so much. <laughs> you know? We see the places we miss so much. And we try to use them. We try to use them for the next person. And that's a lot easier in the slums where I work than it is in the hills of of Los Altos, I think. I think the hills of Los Altos have their own suffering and it is no less than the places where I work. But I think that the ability to be confronted with your own mistakes... (laughs) is much more direct and more simple where I work. And, you know, I used to say I work in war zones because I'm really stupid and I don't understand suffering, so if it's not in my face, you know. Um, We are incredibly fortunate to be able, we are incredibly privileged to be able to work with the people that we do. And the training in joyousness, and I don't mean superficial cheerfulness, okay? <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a group where I don't have to say these things. All right. 
but the training in genuine joyousness and genuine compassion is the most powerful training for the suffering that exists in the world. The Buddha said it a long time ago, all right? And we've all heard it a million, 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 million times. But I guess the thing I got to say today is I really begin to think it's true. (laughs) All right, so I've said much more than I intended. Will people please ask me questions (laughs) with what time is left? Yes? There are five of us, okay? There's me. There's my translator assistant who is now studying psychology. There is the mother of one of our patients who died in April who we tra- April of 2000, whom we trained as a nun. She's in her late 60s, and she's an old Khmer nun, and she is wonderful at chanting for the dying, okay? There is my second translator whose English is just abominable. <laughs> but who is fantastic with children. I'm not particularly good with children. Vesna is great with children, so I don't care how bad his English is. You know, I can, I can do the real talking when I'm with my translator who can talk, and my Khmer's not really so awful anymore, right? And our fifth person started out as our motor, motorcycle driver for our Khmer nun, and... Now he's going to be our administrator. He's doing 80% of the administration while I'm going. He's good with patients, but he doesn't have the... Ramon, my own assistant, has a genius for getting people to talk. You know, they instinctively trust, trust him. He is, they are right to do so. Yeah. Sapia has an organized mind and he likes administrative stuff and he likes getting it right. And, you know, so that's the five of us. And there's a temporary sixth person who is going to cover my caseload. She is the wife of a former monk who died of AIDS in 2001 who had been a monk with Mahagosananda, the leader of the Nabiyatra, and who was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. And she's had a lot of experience, and I'm hoping that if we can actually find the funds for her salary, my own Reiki teacher is going to give me the classes so I can transmit, so she can start to do it. Because if I had someone to help me with Reiki... I would probably go 80% less crazy than I do. (laughs) Well, Reiki is very time-consuming and very important, you know? The patients really love it. So if I had a second person doing it, then I might not have to do my administrative work at 4 in the morning. I'm going to be 60. I don't. I don't know if. I mean, you're, you don't understand what it means to be going to be 60, and I didn't until I was going to be 60. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but I can't pull all-nighters the way I used to, right? So that's who we are at the moment. We're five, we're five people in a substitute. Yeah. We coordinate a lot with other groups. I sent Gil a two-page project description that kind of covers most of this. Um, we coordinate with groups that provide food and money and medicine. We coordinate with a hospital so we can get people in. We are thinking perhaps in two years of opening our own hospice because all of the hospices are Christian and some of them are fundamentalist and their agenda is conversion. And I don't think that people who are dying necessarily need to be told that everything they believed all their lives is wrong, you know. So we'd like, we'd like to open a small hospice where, you know, people could die in the presence of the Buddha. Um, we've been lucky this year because the hospital mortuary asked us to put in a Buddha and we got to do that, and now the place is completely different. <laughs> it used to be this pigsty, <clears throat> and they clean it, and we clean it, and, and you know, I've got all this magic water from a Rinpoche that I see, and, and incense beads from the Dalai Lama, and, and we do prayers every two weeks, and, and it's just an, it's just, it amazes me. I mean, don't ask me about ghost ceremonies. <laughs> we, we, we do ghost ceremonies and the ghosts go away. I don't understand it, okay? <laughs> I just know we've done six of them and not one of the ghosts has come back. <laughs> so, so I get more and more content not to understand what's going on. <laughs> So we work in coordination a whole lot. We, we actively work in coordination with people we respect because there's so many things we can't do that we want to see get done. Yeah. Okay. More questions? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I tried to go straight. <laughs> really. Honest to God, to the end of her life, my mother still was hoping I would marry a Jewish doctor and move to something. (laughs) I think the luck that I've had in my life is not to have, you know, and very often for bad reasons, all right? You know, I was too aggressive and chased all the boys away when I was younger and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, until I put on my robes, I I had never made a lifetime commitment, you know? And I don't know what protected me till then because God knows I tried, all right? (laughs) Other questions? Yeah. You spoke about the compassion and peace that you felt in helping your friend. Mm -hmm. But how about feeling that when you were actually the person who's dying? The more we feel it, the more she feels it. 
She calls, in Cambodia, it's sort of normal to call people your mother. Usually it means I want something from you, right? <laughs> okay, well, dependency relationships in Cambodia are very, very, very different. There is no onus whatsoever on dependency. You know, you try to find a patron and you want that patron to be lifelong and, you know, there are things you do to get one. All right? So I'm very used to people calling me their mother. Okay? She was an orphan at seven. She was raised by, partly by her mother's sister and the mother's sister's husband. Okay? Um, she says, and I feel embarrassed repeating it, she says that she never had a mother until me. Okay? But what I can tell you is most of the time it goes both ways. And when it doesn't, it's because somehow we're missing the key. All right? And it doesn't a lot of the time. Okay? But I'm too caught up in my idea of what I should be to see that this person needs for me to do it a different way. Or <laughs> one of my other favorite people who died last month <laughs> was the world's worst mother. Okay? Absolutely flat out worst. Honest to God. She has five, and like many terrible mothers, her children adored her. <laughs> five girls, two, then a set of twins, okay, and then a baby that she gave away twice. The first time the family was afraid the baby had AIDS, was too young to be tested, gave it back. She gave it away again. We don't know where, okay. <coughs> Mary Noel had tried to save her life a dozen times, but she refused to cooperate. Um, we thought she was dying at least a hundred times in the eight months before she actually died. She would get really, really, really desperately sick, lying in a hammock underneath the boards of her house with uncontrolled diarrhea and vomiting for weeks on end, okay? And somehow, two days after you'd go to see her in that condition, you'd go to see her and she was out gambling again. <laughs> this, woman, this woman got rice to feed her children in and said, oh, this rice isn't good enough, okay? Um, so she gambled it away. <laughs> I mean, this is the slum by the garbage dump, all right? And lots of children have blonde hair. And I'm not talking about, you know, Scandinavians. I'm talking about Kwashiakor or whatever it is that does the hair, okay? But hers, hers stood out among the many, all right? Okay. Poor Ren. Poor Ren. Um, she, she went out to Cham Chow, which is the missionary sisters and mothers of charity hospice. She hated it so much that she left without permission. She stood at the gateway and swore at the gatekeeper till he let her come home. <laughs> um, we saw her the next day for hours, 
and she had an axe under her bed and she was telling us story after story after story about how she used to beat her husband and how people were afraid of her and okay <laughs> and you know we didn't try to teach her anything a year ago we would have been stupid enough to but <laughs> but when she did die and okay about 60 we saw her the two days before she died i saw her friday and she tried to tell me that i had to get her 100,000 children dollars for her children <laughs> my yay saw her the next day my my nun and chanted for a long 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 time she died in the middle of the night we heard first thing in the morning we went to the mortuary her face was incredibly peaceful All right. I chanted a long time with her in the mortuary. She had decided she wanted the Korean church to bury her. We went to the Korean church, they were not interested. All right. <laughs> so she had to go to the one watt that takes destitute patients and they take 60 patients a month from this particular hospital alone. And they have two ovens. We're way over time, so as soon as I finish this story then we should allow people who want to go to go okay but they have two crematorium ovens and then they have spaces around where the families can gather and wait until it's time for the burning and say prayers and chant and visit and do all those things they had not put her in one of those spaces beside the two ovens inside the larger chimney is a space where you could have a third oven but don't that is filled with dead flowers and extra wood and dirt and they had simply thrown her body in the back of that until they could get around to burning her when they were done with everyone else and i realized there was no point in making a fuss because this is what they do with the destitute so i said i was coming the next day for the bones because i thought at least we can get the bones we can buy a small reliquary we can put it near the wat her children will know where to visit she won't be completely lost to them when i came for the bones the next morning they had i was actually going to give them some money but this decided me against it um they had them in a little wicker flat basket laid they'd all gone to breakfast so they just laid them outside the locked door like somebody something you leave outside for the dog so we got her bones and it turned out that her oldest daughter had gone to her home village and brought back some relatives and the relatives were going to take all four children thank god and they took the bones and her husband's bones were there so it it has a happy ending okay but it's not about a peaceful death although i was amazed at her face you know because we come the bodies are covered we supply candles and incense we light candles and incense we sprinkle them with rinpoche water we say lots of prayers traditionally in cambodia you wrap the person's hands around candles incense 
and a 500 real note. There are 500, uh, 3,950 real make a dollar, all right? <laughs> and there are other things you do, but at least you do that, so they're burned with that, okay? So we uncover and we chant while she's uncovered. We chant to her, all right, not to her shroud. And I was amazed at her face. I was just amazed at her face. You know, it was so relaxed and so peaceful and so fine. I'd never seen her like that in life. (laughs) So who knows what works? We don't. Yeah. We know that for most people, it would be harder without us. Okay. All right. So I would like to thank everybody enormously for coming and for being here and for being part of Gil's wonderful sangha and just for all of it. Okay. Thank you.